Christmas joy, huh? Oh, man, we about to have a, a dialogical time together. Children, you may be dismissed this morning. I had to, I had to beat Jenny. I don't remember the last time I was up here, Jenny. Jenny wanted to make sure I made sure the kids were dismissed. Uh, friends, family, everybody here today, are you ready to study your Bibles? Great, me too. Keep warming up. It's okay. Keep warming up. This morning, we uh, gather for our second to last week in Advent, and I thought it would be good for us to go to a place uh, in the text where we began this series in. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn them on or pull them out and head to Romans 8. And as you swipe there or turn there, uh, I want to frame up our time. I, I don't know about you, but my family is in the thick of Christmas time. We're eating holiday meals, drinking holiday drinks, watching our favorite movies and shows about Christmas time. I've seen Charlie Brown Christmas so many times this year. Uh, my boy Linus kills it at the end. Y'all remember that? Or to us, a child. Oh, man. My boy went into it. But uh, this week, my, my wife and I uh, rewatched the Christmas episode of Ted Lasso, which she'll kill me if I don't tell you this, that although the show is very wonderful, it is very much for adults. But uh, I, I say that because I have a thing I'll say later. But I'm gonna t- actually, I'll tell you why I love this show so much. Most movies and TV shows that we'll watch will sort of transport you to another place in time. They talk about joy and gift-giving as these welcomed distractions and or solutions to all of life's circumstances. If you're weary, have a meal with family, which to some of us, that's like, that's just going to increase the weariness. No, thank you. If you're feeling down or lonely or frustrated with your relatives, one popular movie suggests getting lost in New York City renting a hotel suite on your daddy's dime, ordering a bunch of room service, getting chased around Manhattan by two kidnappers, and I can't forget making friends with a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful pigeon lady and gifting her turtle doves as a gift. That's the plot of Home Alone 2, by the way. But in the case of this episode of Ted Lasso, it comes off the heels of some very important events for the character's development. You have one character dealing with the reality of her divorce and then added grief of her father's passing. You have a child bullied in her school for a medical condition she didn't even know she had. You have a couple trying to keep the fire in their relationship going. Another character dealing with deep internal conflict. You have a bunch of characters homesick, spending Christmas in another country for the first time. And then you have Ted. Ted is the happiest person in the world. In a lot of ways, I want to be like Ted. Ted's a great, great person. But there is a shadow side to his joy. He's dealing with a serious mental health crisis on top of his very, very recent divorce. So then you have a Christmas episode, an episode about music, gifts, laughter, cheer, family, diversity, belonging. 
And that, but the episode does something wonderful. It, it doesn't propose a solution to life's problems with Christmas time activities. What it does is it invites you to bring your whole self, all of your experiences, all of your problems, all of the weariness that you feel, and it challenges you not to turn away in solitude, but to, con- to invite community in. It challenges you to press into the love of the people around you when you don't feel loved. When you feel as if you don't deserve to be loved. When you feel like you can't give love anymore, the invitation of this episode is to remember that wherever you are in any circumstance, in any trial, remember that you are so loved. I believe this to be a fantastic principle. This is why secular art can oftentimes be good. I think historically the church would agree. See, the church calendar is set up in such a way that this time of year for the last four weeks we've engaged in a lovely tradition. For the church, historically this time of year, we don't look first across the table for comfort. We don't look under the tree for joy. We don't look in the mirror at ourselves for reassurance and safety. Instead, we are called to press into someone else. To bring our whole selves, all our pain, all our anxiety, all our sadness to someone else. The Advent season calls us to remember when the embodiment of love took on infant flesh. And look towards his second coming when true love transforms the world. That's what Advent means. It's Latin for coming or arrival. It's the anticipation of the arrival of someone. And so that's what I want to title our time together this morning. Advent love. Coming love. The arrival of love. And for you note takers in the room, there's another way you can title this. I am his and he is mine. We're going to look at five verses here in chapter 8. And then I'll just have two points for us to consider this morning, and then I'll be in my seat, going to try and not talk at y'all or yell at y'all for too long. I know the World Cup is going, so keep Argentina lifted in your prayers. (laughs) But if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, and then would you pray for me as I pray for you, as together we hear from the Lord. Romans 8, starting at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? God, we are here again. 
coming to your house once more as weary guests. Coming tired, coming smelly from a lifetime of travel. We come aching and sore from a lifetime of baggage. Father, may we find your house, your word, and your table medicine for our weariness. A present help, a sure rest from our travels. And at your table, may we taste and see that you are good. Father, would you give me with clarity of speech and thought as the preacher? Would you give the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors in Christ Jesus' name? Amen. You may be seated. There are a lot of things in this world I love. I love a good meal. Obviously, look at me. I ain't ashamed. I love good art. Not just on canvas or digitally, but in music and on screen. I love you, this church. But there are some things in this life that can't compare. Like the beautiful things of God, like his word. But see, that's a problem, right? The same word I use to describe my affection for you is the same word I use to describe my affection for my wife. The same word I use to describe my affection for video games is the same word I use to describe my affection for the word of God. That's a problem. Our definition of love is fickle. It's not great. And even conceptually, we confuse love all the time. We confuse love with infatuation. I try to tell young couples all the time, be cautious about throwing that word around. You underestimate the power of infatuation. We confuse love with delight. We're so used to the word that just because we enjoy something doesn't necessarily mean we love it. This four-letter word sits among the most powerful words in the English language, and we use it to describe our affections for our grandmothers and pizza. In other words, humanity, you and I included, have attempted to describe, explain, showcase love in every depraved and honest way we can. Charlie Day says this, human language is the poverty of speech when trying to communicate the essence of love. And here's what the text makes plain to us, that God loves us. And given all that I just said, that's kind of crazy, right? It's, it's a hard thing to grasp because if the essence of God's love for us is anything like our most purest forms of love, that feels off. Does God love me like I love my children? Does God love me like I love my wife? Does he love me like I love tacos? 
I think you would agree. Though there is something there to the relationship between our earthly love and what the Bible describes as God's love for us. There's something there, but I think you would agree that there also has to be something more. Huh? Dialogical. Yeah, thank you. Some deeper kind of love than what we've come up with on our own. I know some of y'all need to hear this. You're struggling with God loving you because you compare his love to some other love you thought was everlasting. That's all your brain can fathom, family. Paul wants to challenge that. Humans can leave. Human love can leave. It can be untied, split apart, separated. Someone can say they found their soulmate, love them for 20 years, reciting Shakespeare. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? That are more lovely and temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May. And summer's lease hath all too short a day. You probably know the rest. Yeah, someone said, woo. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. But let that person wound you. In such a way, you'll never love that person again. I'm just trying to say that this holiday season, you might be feeling this sort of incompleteness. Some of you are going to feel the wound of human love through abuse. Some of you are going to have a first Christmas without a spouse. Some of you may have your first Christmas without a parent or a relative. Some of you might have your first Christmas away from home. And this Advent morning, what the text is saying to you is that love as you've said it, love as you've shown it, love as you experienced it cannot compare to the love that God has for you. You can't be asleep yet, church. I just started. 551 times. The ESV uses the word love. And what I'm trying to argue, family, is that that kind of love is hard to grasp. But once you do, my, 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 it changes everything. I like what John says about this dilemma here we're speaking of in 1 John 4. He echoes Paul's words at the top of chapter 8, but he says it like this, 1 John 4, 7 through 10. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who, who does not love does not know God. That's the highlight part, if you're a highlighter. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, family, there is a connection between how we love one another and how God loves us. But don't get the text confused. It is not saying that we love others in the exact same way God loves us. It says that we experience love because God loved us and is love. I'll try it this way. Lovelessness is godlessness. 
If you don't love, you don't have God. But you don't love like God. You love because God. Family, you must know this. John is saying here, God is love. And he has shown his love in that, here it is, he sent his only son into the world to be a propitiation, a substitute, a sacrifice for our sins. Oh, that's good news to the discouraged, to the disheartened, to the downtrodden here this morning. That's good news to the encouraged, to the full of heart, to the joyful this morning. God has shown, and not just shown, but put on his love on you. Giving you the clearest, purest, bestest display of love there ever was in giving his son Jesus. All our attempts at love are microcosms of this love. They are failed but honest attempts at displaying God's affection towards us. It's like comparing a hill to Mount Everest. It doesn't even come close. And what's more baffling is when you realize that you did nothing to deserve it. See, my wife, who's sitting back there, what's up, girl? She had to earn this love. And I hers, don't get it twisted. That road's a two-way street. She knows her worth and I know mine. But there's merit there, you see what I'm saying? What she brought to the table, I saw good, worthy. Same for me to her. But it is not so with God. Spurgeon writes it like this. Christ did not love you for your good works. They were not the cause of his beginning to love you. So he does not love you for your good works even now. They are not the cause of his continuing to love you. He loves you because he loves you. Some of you need to hear that this morning. God loves you because he loves you. Close your eyes for just a second. Don't do the thing where you ignore me. Close your eyes for just a second. And whisper that to yourself this morning. Even if you're not a believer in this room, even if you don't know where you're at in your faith right now, say it to yourself. God loves me because he loves me. Let me tell you what that means. That means you don't got to clean yourself up before you can be loved by him. That, that, That means you don't have to get ready to be loved by him. That, that means you don't have to be healed from your trauma to be loved by him. He loves you just as you are. You don't, you don't even have to love him all the way for him to love you. Well, John says he loved you first. First means when you didn't love him, he loved you. And there Paul asks the question, who can separate us from the love of God? I love the phrasing of Paul's question. Notice the language here. What can separate us from his love? It's not what separates God from our love. Because the truth is, anything and everything does. 
No, you didn't like that. That's cool. Our children stop us from being obedient and coming to church all the time. Work. The weariness of work tires our bones. We don't show up to fellowship with the saints. We don't pray. We don't devote. Our great-grand-auntie by marriage comes into town to visit you, and that's it. You're gone for two weeks. You don't even talk to the Lord privately. Everything separates God from our love. Paul asked the question this way. I want to challenge you. Paul asked the questions this way because real love is given, expressed, not based on the worthiness of the recipient, but off of the nobility of the giver. In other words, if we look at love through the lens of us, we'll never see true love. But if we look at love through the lens of God, you're not hearing me today. That's all good. Who can separate us from the love of God? That, that family is a question not to be trifled with. That, that, that is a question not to be ignored. That, that is a question that is birthed out of the contemplation, the marveling of the amazing love of Christ. It is a question that one asks when one looks back on their own life and asks it already knowing the answer but speaks in any way to teach somebody. Paul is asking the question autobiographically. He's saying, when I look back on my life, when I look back on everything, all that I was, all that I am, all that I've been through, all that I'm going through, I see the fingerprints of the embodiment of love all over it. Who can separate me from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul in his excitement. Begins listing off the most powerful things in the cosmos. He makes one list. Pronounces the word of truth to the readers. And then he makes a grander list. The first group. Is tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. All physical, tangible things. And if you know your Bible, you know that Paul experienced all of these things. And I can promise you now, in this life, you will not see such things to the degree he did. He experienced them far and away worse than we in this room are likely to. And I don't mean that by criticism, I mean that by encouragement. I'll give you an example. Before I take a big risk in life, I talk to two people. Someone who did what I'm trying to do and failed. And someone who did what I'm trying to do and almost failed and made it through. Because it shows me it's possible. It reminds me that I will, not, that I will likely not see the same things to the same degree. But when I experience what I experience, I can make it through by the grace of God. That is what Paul is doing to us here. He begins this list with tribulations. The Greek means to suffer under a great pressure or oppression. What Paul is saying, when you suffer something so vast that death is on your doorstep. Some of you know what it's like in here to get a doctor's report that you did not want to hear. That's just one example. 
But what happened was is that when you received that news, the gravity of your situation was oppressing. The end might be nearer than you imagined. That level of suffering, Paul says, that won't do it. Then he says distress. If tribulation was the thing, Distress is the emotional side. It's the inner constriction felt by external tribulation. It's the feeling the circumstance brings. When it feels like weight is pressed upon your body, like you have drowned, sinking so deep in the ocean of suffering that the pressure is all-consuming to your senses, Paul says, that won't do it. Y'all never been through nothing. He goes on persecution. When you are being hunted down, tortured for your faith. Maybe, maybe not even to that degree. Criticized, ridiculed, alienated. Cut off. See, the early church that Paul was writing to, they knew this intimately well. It was persecution that allowed the gospel to advance because it went wherever haters of the Lord sent it. Paul says, that won't do it either. Then there's three that go together, famine, nakedness, and danger. Paul says, I've been hungry. I've been stripped naked. I've been poisoned. I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten. I've been in jail. I've been poor. I've been tired. None of that can do it either. And then he concludes his first list. He says, the sword. Scholars are clear here, Paul's referring to martyrdom. See, you, you may have tasted persecution, maybe. But to see the sword, Paul says, even if it gets to the point of death. I'll give you a modern day example. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spent his adult career fighting for, preaching for, contending for the social demonstration of gospel application and they killed him for it. And Paul says, that ain't enough. You're not listening to me today. Then he recites Psalm 44 to remind the church in Rome, to remind us that the sword is not a new enemy against us. It's not a new weapon of the enemy used in an attempt to sever our security in the love of God, but for generations we've been put to the sword. We have died for the sake of Christ, and Christians and their families have never had to wonder if by some cosmic act of tyranny the sword cut down their standing in Jesus because Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I need you to believe this to be true, church. Paul is asking whether the sufferings of this world can separate us from the love of Christ. This is a profoundly important question to us because the temptation family, and maybe you have already fallen into it once or twice before, is to believe that God does not love us or that we have fallen out of his favor simply because we endure trials. Paul means to tell us that suffering for the sake of Christ should not take us by surprise. For it is always, always 
in the lot given to God's beloved. Our suffering does not mean that the Lord has stopped loving us. Instead, Paul argued that it is an opportunity to us, for us, to reveal ourselves as more than conquerors through him who loved us. That is a pronouncement over you. More than a conqueror. Completely and utterly promised to prevail. God is with all who endure for his name's sake. And because that's true, we are still more than conquerors, even if suffering leads to death. Because having been raised with Christ, we will live forever and ever and ever. Oh, praise God. Let enemies do their worst. They cannot overpower the love of our God. I said I'll be short, so I'm just going to move on. I'm not going to wait for you to get there with me. Verse 38 through 39 calls for reflection rather than interpretation. I'll tell you what that means. It, 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 it acts, verse 38 through 39, acts as a, as a good measure for what you just read. It's as if Paul was saying, and if that wasn't enough to convince you, he says, I am sure. See, in the first half, the first list, you could fit your experience into the text. You could interpret those words to degrees of their meanings and walk away with the point of the passage. You understand what I'm saying to you? We just did that. We just did that. But on this list, the second list, this list is not tangible or physical. These, these are things beyond our control or measure. They're cosmic things. Let, let me make my case. He says, neither death nor life. This is interesting. Because death is what most of us in here are most fearful of. You have no control over when and how you die. Even to the point of suicide. And listen to me because I know. I know what it's like to have walked into the room with determination. Only to have something outside of me pull me out. You have no control. Even when you want to take control. But that's not the fear, right? Some of y'all. That's not the fear. It's not the how. It's the what. What happens when I die? What happens to my family? What happens to my friends? What happens to me? Where do I go? That's the question, right? And what of life? We're alive right now. All standing in the love of God. And yet, if we're honest, Life and all its alluring vices pull us away from our love of God. Living distracts us. Living, as we have already mentioned, has dangers all on its own. 
And yet for these two nemeses, we have already heard direction from Paul, no? For I know that to live is and to die is. Death cannot rob the saint because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And the threats of life, Paul says, are no match to God's power to preserve. He goes on, nor angels, nor rulers. The, the Greek is unclear here, and so is the English. Some translations you might have in your Bible right now says principalities. It probably says demons. Um, even the most accurate Spanish translations uh, say, say demons here. Now, I got some Pentecostal in me still, and I think demons is the right interpretation. I think it's consistent with the language, life, death, height, depth, present, age to come, angels, demons. But why, why would he say this? Well, you have to keep in mind that the early church, they didn't have the New Testament completed like we do. All they had was the old. And plenty of times in the Old, we like to read the New Testament. We don't really like to read the Old Testament. We don't know what to do with it. We don't have theological categories for it. Several, several times in the Old Testament, angels were not to be played with. For example, 2 Kings 19 tells us that an angel, one single angel, killed a hundred and 85,000 Assyrians in one night. An angel. One single angel. 185,000 Assyrians. There were men that lived. I don't think you understand this. You're, look, it's, not, it's beyond church tradition for you to talk back at this point. I'm not sure you're amazed by this. There were 185,000 living people in this world that the last thing they saw in this life was an angelic being cut them down. Thank you. That was one angel. And Paul says... Even if the whole host of angels tried together as one unit to separate you from the love of God, I know they couldn't. But what of demons? Don't worry. Some of y'all are like, mm, this is spooky. It's Christmas, Justin. Talking about death, I let that pass. Talking about demons now, I don't know. I want to remind you of Mark 5 because the Roman church would have had this letter by now since it was the first one written. But in Mark 5, Jesus it tells us when Jesus went to the Gerasenes, he got off the boat and there was a man living in the tombs. He was completely and utterly unclean. He had superhuman strength, the Bible says. That the people of the town tried to chain him up, bound him with chains, and on his strength, the chains could not hold him. 
Bible says he would spend all night and all day screaming and crying. And he would grab stones and cut himself open. I want to tell you, church, he wasn't mentally ill. He wasn't sick. I like to explain this stuff away with that. That's not what the text says. He didn't have a disease. What was happening to him, he did not choose to happen. This was Satan's plot, his attempt to corrupt and destroy the Imago Day before the God-man himself. Jesus says to this man, what is your name? The man says, Legion, for we are many. This man possessed five to six thousand demons all inside of him. Jesus says to this man, go. And they flee. And that man runs and tells about the love of God to everyone he could find. Paul says, can demons do it? No. Paul goes on now to, to broaden the lens. He says, everything in the present age and age to come, which of course covers everything not already covered, and then he says, height nor depth. I'll take a note there because he's not talking about measurements. These terms were astrological terms. They were to express mystery and profundity. Heights are the galaxies and depths are like the Marianas Trench. We don't know what's down there. We don't know what's up there. But whatever it is or isn't can't do it either. Then finally, the climax, and with this, I'll close. I'll get out of here. Paul says, none of it. None of it will be able to separate us from the love of God in who? Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul ends, as John writes, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. The question must be asked, how? How do I know that he loved me first? John says, which Paul echoes, because his, he sent his son to die and be a propitiation for... See, God could have remained in heaven, great and glorious as he is. But when he saw the world and the fractures in his cause, he went on the move. And in Matthew chapter 1, he said, God said, I'm going to fix the problem by coming down. I sent enough humans to go fix the problem. I sent Moses, and he couldn't do it. I sent David, and he couldn't do it. And then I gave Solomon, and he couldn't do it. And I did Elijah, and Isaiah, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and Amos, and Micah. I sent them all, and they couldn't do it. i got to come down myself in the form of my son to fix the problem myself. And then what did he do? He died. He died. He died till sin apologized. He died till death died with him. And then he came back. Bodily resurrected. Oh church, if you want to know if God loves you, gaze upon the cross. That blood-stained tree, Paul says, proves more than anything, any word, any deed could ever do. Love. It shows us love. 
you will see in the cross the totality of his love for you. Love that adopts you from darkness into light. Love that moves you, redeems you, makes you new every day. Love that grafts you in, weaves you into the household of God. So now we know that God loves us. That God has shown his love to us in Jesus. And because he shows us in Jesus nothing, I need you to say it back one time. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Can tribulation? No. Can distress? Can persecution? Famine? Nakedness or danger? Can the sword? Neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So now when the weariness of this world presses upon you, you can rejoice in that old song, His forever and only His, who the Lord in me shall part. Ah, with great rest of bliss, Christ can fill the loving heart. Heaven and earth may fade and flee, firstborn light and gloom decline, but while God and I shall be, I am his and he is mine. Stand with me and worship. That's fine. You took the day off and so did I. I didn't sweat much. Y'all know I'll be up here dripping. <clears throat> I want to invite you to be before the Lord this morning by eating at his table. For all who have placed their faith in Jesus, who is our true and good advocate to God, for all who have the spirit in them working on their behalf at every bench, you will find baskets with communion elements inside. Grab yours and then would you wait for my instruction? Some of you here this morning cannot take this meal. You should not. Because it does not yet have a use to you. It will not serve you. You might find yourself here not a believer this morning. God's love might even be a point of contention for you. You might say, how can a God of love permit so much evil in the world? That's a very real question. It's not a question to be dismissed. It's an honest one. How can a God who loves let people get abused, killed senselessly? How can he permit earthly tragedies? These these are things you, you might have thought to yourself. Therefore, I have not allowed you fully embraced or for you to fully embrace the arms that embrace you. May I suggest that you're using the wrong measuring stick. You're using the wrong gauge when trying to understand or comprehend God's love. You heard me say it. We don't determine the love of God by what he withholds. 
we determine the love of God by what he gives. You cannot win any argument with God, with people, or with yourselves on whether or not God was loving because he didn't do something you and if because because then what you've done is you've made yourself the moral authority friend if you've lived a perfect life please I'll pray to you you have question has consequences Better way to ask the question is this. If God is love, what did he do? That's the better way to ask. Logically. What did he do? And since God is love, I'll tell you what he did. He gave his only son you in your place he died so that you might live in his love that will never let go this meal is a meal of remembrance it's a meal that reminds us that we have been blood bought saved into eternity And that by his broken body and shed blood, glory awaits us. Because the love of God takes us all the way home, friend, don't take the cup, take Jesus this morning. Now, for those of you partaking, I want to read into your hearing a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians 11. And then we'll take on command. God's word reads, For I have received from the Lord what I have also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread. I have my communion cup. I forgot. Catch up. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take the cup and then join me in word. God, once again, you have been a perfect host. In your home, we have found belonging. In your word, we have heard your voice. And at your table, we have remembered your son. May the work you began this morning carry on into the rest of our lives. Jesus be glorified.